Welcome to the ProfServe Traction Podcast, dedicated to exploring how professional services and technology businesses break through the ceiling. Here's your host, Steve Prada. Good day, uh, dear listeners. Uh, we are the ProfServe Traction Podcast. My name is Steve Prada, and I have with me today Steve Anderson, who is the president of the Anderson Network, the publisher of a leading industry newsletter on how to maximize your technology investment in insurance. He is also a member of several boards of directors and advisor boards around the insurance industry. But most importantly, uh, recently he published a book titled The Bezos Letters, 14 Principles to Grow Your Business Like Amazon. Uh, So welcome to the show, Steve. Steve, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. Great to have you. So, Steve, uh, first of all, let me ask you, I mean, how does a person who lives their life in the insurance industry suddenly write a book about Amazon? How does that work? How does it came about? Yeah, I, I get that question often because it, it isn't always intuitive, but insurance and risk management are what I've done for the last 20 years. And as you mentioned, uh, helping insurance agents and brokers in the industry uh, utilize technology. And as we all know, technology is uh, continues to develop really rapidly. And so a few years ago, I came up with this thought that the biggest risk businesses take is actually not taking enough risk. And this specifically with technologies, right? So as new stuff comes, you know, 10, 15 years ago, businesses had a couple years to think about how it would impact their business. Today, they don't have nearly that amount of time. And so I started looking at businesses in general that were doing well with staying up with new stuff and those that didn't. Those The companies that didn't do well, we all probably know as BlackBerry and Blockbuster and Sears. And I mean, there's a whole list of companies that are no longer around. And I looked at companies that were doing it well and came across Amazon uh, as one that continues to be able to invent and do new new things in support of their customers. And so I my research, I came across the shareholder letters, read a few of them, and was very impressed with the amount of information that Jeff Bezos included in there about how he does things. And I ended up literally reading every letter. There were 20 at the time as a single narrative, one right after the other. Right. And I created a what I called an executive summary of each letter, and I was going to give it away. You know, just as, hey, here's some good thoughts. Uh, Fortunately, my wife is in the book publishing business. I talked to her about it, and she talked to a couple of friends of hers, and they all said, this is a book, not something just to give away. And so that started an 18-month-plus journey of writing a book, and uh, it it definitely um, has turned out well for me. That's awesome. So, uh, so what are the secrets? I mean, what does what does Bezos do that other mortals don't do, and how does he describe his his process? I would say a couple things. One is again from my risk management and insurance background, I call Jeff Bezos the master of risk, meaning one of the ways he has grown Amazon from a startup. And you know, frankly, most businesses forget that he was on his hands and knees packaging books and driving them to the post office literally like every other business owner, but he takes a very counterintuitive approach 
to risk-taking, to managing the business. And, uh, you know, so that's where the 14 principles that I came up with really came from. Okay, what are the things that he does and how does he go about doing it? And and I I would say risk-taking and very counterintuitive business processes. He does things differently than most every other business I know of, that's for sure. So when you're talking about risk-taking, I mean, I've worked with a lot of entrepreneurs and what I find or what I have found that it's not so much the taking of the risk, which differentiates the successful ones, but it's more about how do they take risks and manage risks at the same time so that they take risks, they experiment, but they also protect their downside. And they say that if you protect your downside, your upside will take care of itself. Agreed. Uh, so can you talk to, to that a little bit, how that works uh, for Bezos? Yeah. So in Bezos' minds, everything is risk-taking, but you're right. It's managing that risk or taking risk strategically. And so principle number one, I talk about the principle is encourage successful failure. And at Amazon, every employee is expected to experiment and look for new and better ways to do things. But their process is experimentation first, and by its very nature, an experiment is more likely to fail than succeed. So that's kind of that first mindset shift. And two, experimentation leads to learning what works, what doesn't work, and that leads to invention. So one of his phrases that perhaps one of my favorite is, we invent on behalf of the customer. And so it's always customer focused and it's looking to improve the customer experience on the website, in the shipment, in the delivery, in, you know, literally every area of what, you know, Amazon does. So that's interesting. So what you're saying is that they have this customer focus. And one of the things you mentioned in your, in your book is that he expects his customer, uh, his people to be obsessed with the customers. It's not about just to focus on them, but to obsess about them. So what does it mean being obsessed versus being focused? How do you get more focused by being obsessed? It's interesting the, the way he used the word obsessed. And he did it in his first 1997 letter. And he stated, our goal is to be the most customer-centric company in the world. And so customer obsession is just a more of a focus. And for Amazon, everything starts with the customer. And they work backwards. In fact, they have a process called working backward that they use in order to determine what decisions to make and and what projects to move forward on. And, And, you know, again, counterintuitively, in 2004, Bezos banned any kind of PowerPoint, keynote, slide oriented presentation. And so their decision making process is completely counterintuitive to what you find in almost any other business. And again, one of their core strengths is being able to so focus, obsess over customers that they're able to make and create new products and services that the customers they feel will eventually want. You know, Prime, uh, Amazon Prime is a perfect example. You know, at the time, this is early 2000s, nobody was asking for free shipping, but shipping costs were a friction point in the sales process. So if they could remove that friction, they would get more sales. That was the theory. Every manager, every executive at Amazon said, we can't afford to do that. But Bezos had an intuitive feeling that if it's better for the customer, 
it will be better for Amazon and our shareholders. And I think we can look forward, you know, 20 years and see that I think he might be right. Yes, it's really interesting uh, about Amazon that they take this very long view. So they are a public company, but Jeff Bezos <laughs> seems to have ignored, uh, you know, corely shareholder concerns and he went against the grain. And for, I don't know, for 20 years, he didn't pay any dividends. He right. was plowing everything back into the company and some shareholders hated him for it. But at the same time, the share price uh, kept climbing. Um, and, and, and keeps climbing. <laughs> and it keeps climbing. Yeah. And at some, at some point, maybe at 10 years ago, I looked at the, their financial statements. And what I found was that the only, uh, the, that their profit, I think they made like four or five billion dollar profit at the time. And it was the same amount as the unclaimed Amazon gift card balance. Yeah. So essentially all the profit that they made was unclaimed uh, Amazon gift cards. Essentially, they put every profit back into the company yep. and uh, to reinvest in the business. Yep. And, and, and that's very much so. And you talk about the long-term thinking, that's also a principle. And, you know, he says in that very first 1997 letter, and I'm quoting now, we believe a fundamental measure of our success will be the shareholder value we create over the long term. And so he pretty much single-handedly told Wall Street to take a hike that they are not going to focus on quarterly earnings and kind of what every other company does, because for them, it was really a land rush at those early years in terms of the internet and building the infrastructure, building the delivery network, building the logistics to be able to deliver those packages. And I think you can say now, it's certainly that long-term view has paid off. Yeah. And from the ultimately from the shareholders perspective, if the best investment is to keep your money in, in Amazon, then why do you want to take it as a dividend? Why don't you keep it in the company and let it keep uh, multiply itself inside right. the company? Exactly. Um, in fact, they haven't paid a dividend yet. They have not. That's right. Yep. Yep. Uh, yeah. You know, there is the theory that the uh, shareholders can manufacture dividends. They can just share, sell some shares and that's their dividend. Right. Uh, yep. it, it's up to them. Yep. So, you know, what this podcast is is about, I call them management blueprints or business uh, creating business building frameworks, you can also call it. It's kind of mental concepts that help you think about your business in a more strategic way and help you build your business. Uh, have you found that Amazon has some of these in that business? How do they think about the, the framework? Yeah, so I, I would, I've kind of had two different answers to that or two parts of an answer. I think the first is the 14 principles I identify in the book are what I have seen as the growth principles that Amazon uses. And, and I do believe any business can, can look at these and focus on what they think is most important and, and use that framework in order to grow. The other part of the answer is Amazon has also 14 leadership principles that guide the company in their day-to-day -day activity. And I think what's important to note here is that these leadership principles aren't just something on the wall, but literally it's something that most employees, I won't say every, but most employees refer back to and uh, use as they're making their day-to-day -day decisions. And so kind of the, those frameworks, leadership and, and my growth principles, you know, work together in order to be able for Amazon to grow. And like I said, I, I think they can apply to any business that will be willing to think differently about their business. Like, you know, successful failure. I mean, that most businesses don't think that. And I'm convinced that employees aren't actually afraid of failure. 
they're actually afraid of the consequences of failure. And when you have consequences to failure, then your business growth stagnates because right. people won't step out. They won't experiment. They won't try something new. So it's very much a cultural thing. How do you allow people to, to experiment? Like Google have, for years, they had 20% time. Correct. Where the employees could spend their Friday just working on their pet projects. And some of them blew up and that's really helped Google. Correct. And it also helped keep the best employees. Yeah. And that, that same idea, they don't call it that, but that same idea happens at Amazon. I mean, literally every employee, regardless of where they are in the organization, are encouraged to keep asking questions. Why are we doing it this way? Is there a better way to do something? And that's, again, when you look at all the new things that Amazon gets into, that's the reason why. they have a. They, I call them an invention factory. I mean, literally, they keep manufacturing new inventions all again back to that customer obsession and, and focus on doing what's best for the customer. That's fascinating. So going back to this uh, management blueprint or you know um, business framework idea. So you know that there are fourteen for growth, there are fourteen for leadership. Can you share with us a couple of growth principles that can really help a small to medium sized business to grow, especially a people business, professional services, technology business. Can you give 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 yeah, me a couple I, examples? So there there are a couple things that couple that come to mind. I'm going to pick a couple here. You know, one of the questions I get is of the 14 principles, which is the most important? And that's like asking which of my grandchildren I love best, right? So I mean, I picked 14 for a reason. However, I think conceptually one of the important ones and one of the hardest to understand and implement is principle six, which is understand your flywheel. So where that comes from is Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. Uh, Chapter eight is the flywheel and the doom loop. Mm -hmm. What most people don't know is Bezos invited Collins to Amazon in the fall of 2001, just before that book was published. And Collins spent a whole day with the senior leadership team teaching them, talking about the flywheel. And they came out of that meeting with a sketch of Amazon's flywheel. And they're still pushing that flywheel today. So you can point to everything that they've done, maybe some things that seem crazy, but it's all pointing back to what are the key components to continue the growth engine that is known as Amazon. So I think for a business, small, medium, large, thinking about what are the key inputs that we need to continue pushing that will continue to help our business to grow. And they won't be what Amazon's are, right? One of them for Amazon is low prices. Well, that's not necessarily the key to success and growth for every business. But what are the ones for your business? And so many people listening probably have that book on their shelf somewhere, pull it out, go to just chapter eight, reread that chapter to get familiarized with that. But I think that's a key concept that continues to drive Amazon today. That's fascinating. So how could, uh, so can you elaborate a little bit more? So what does Amazon do uh, about the low prices that creates this flywheel effect? And that's kind of a uh, self-feeding. Well, the self-feeding is, yeah, the self-feeding for Amazon, the way they sketched it out was one, more customers to the website. So the more customers they can drive to the website, the more leverage they will have with manufacturers because they have higher volume so they can get better pricing. Better pricing leads to more customers coming. A a 
great customer experience or obsessing over customers lead customers to telling other people about it, which brings more people to the website, which allows them to negotiate more. And then they added on to that kind of a outside loop, which was third-party sellers. So in early 2000, they literally opened up their website to third-party sellers to sell right next to Amazon's products, their own products. Now, Amazon charged a fee, but again, the thought process is if a customer can find a product at a better price from a third-party seller, that's better for the customer and it's going to be better for Amazon. Now, Amazon charges today 15% of that sale, right? To allow that third-party small business, mostly seller, to have access to their real estate. So that's now a whole other business that continues to push that flywheel. That's really interesting. So essentially, they are a marketplace uh, in themselves. Yes. And uh, they create uh, this opportunity for others to be part of the marketplace and use the platform. Essentially, they are using their platform platform, to sell. Yep. Which is a fascinating um, idea and one of the, uh, this is one of the tenets, um, you know, I'm part of a coaching program called Strategic Coach. And what Dan Sullivan uh, talks about in Strategic Coach is that uh, it's basically a state of your company. Uh, you, you first, you build your product and then you, you get, you build your customer service, your customer relationship, and then you create a community in this, in the marketplace, which can be turned then into a marketplace. Right. Where you are actually creating this, this it's more than a, just transactional relationship becomes more of an emotional a lifestyle or even kind of a strategic partnership type relationship in the market. And this is how you especially grow your, your, your business into, into a market. Uh, ultimately. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah. And then you kind of have the whole Amazon web services that started out solving a need that Amazon had and in terms of technology and computing platforms and all of those kinds of things. And, and then they realized, you know what, there's probably other startups that would want access to computing power without having to build huge data centers and spend all that money. Yep. So that's, that's what started AWS and now a huge part of their profit and you know, what they provide as part of their platform. Yeah, they keep they keep growing and expanding. That's that's fascinating. I, I saw a, a chart uh, recently which suggested that Amazon is now uh, so dominant in retail that it, it's bigger than the next five or six competitors combined. You know, mm-hmm. Walmart and Target and all these. It's it's all all smaller than Amazon. Right. They, they keep keep kind of uh, taking market share from others. So going back to this growth idea, you also talk in your book about four key growth cycles that every successful company is always uh, moving through. Can you talk to this a little bit, what that looks like and why this is important? Yeah, the four cycles are test, build, accelerate, and scale. Uh, And I do believe that every business, regardless of size, is, is... going through these different cycles. So you start testing, you have an idea, you have a product, you have a service, it could be a brand new startup, it could be an existing business that decides, okay, we've, you know, we can invent, right, on behalf of the customer, this new service, are they going to like it? Let's test it. And Amazon tests things all the time. And they fail a lot. I mean, they're, I describe in the book, I believe their biggest failure was the phone, the Amazon Fire phone. 2014, they 
to great fanfare, Jeff Bezos on the stage, looking a little like Steve Jobs wannabe, announced this brand new phone. Well, you know, 2007, we got the iPhone. We already had Androids. Why did we need another phone? Spectacular failure. They couldn't give them away. They wrote off $178 million in inventory and development costs at the end of that quarter, last quarter of 2014. But four months after the phone was announced, Bezos got his first demonstration of what we would come to know as the Echo and Alexa. So voice processing with this device, right, that you talk to. And again, he talks about inventing on behalf of the customer. If we had asked customers, do you want a cylinder that sits on your table that you can talk to and ask questions? He said, nobody would say that they wanted that. But we understand our customers so intimately that we realized that we could develop something that they would grow into using. And I, I have multiple ones in my house in terms of I use them for cooking in the kitchen, you know, all kinds of different things, because now we've become used to this idea of being able to talk to a device and getting an answer from it. And, and that also illustrates uh, one of the other principles, which is make complexity simple. So the technology behind Alexa, machine learning, voice processing, the Echo hardware device, and I'm still astounded that I can stand across the kitchen and ask Alexa to do something and she understands me. So that, that far, it's called far field voice processing. Those are huge technical problems and challenges that Amazon was able to solve and create now uh, another platform, right, that engages people in a different way. So this idea of simplify complexity, what is the process there? Um, how, how, do, how do people do that? I mean, obviously well, Steve Jobs did it with the iPhone, um, you know, the earlier phones, I, I had a Palm Pilot. Oh, yes. Microsoft <laughs> with it, and they put a very sophisticated software on it, which was a garbage. And then the whole company went down the drain. And what Steve Jobs did, he just said, okay, we just have a screen and, you know, every application is just a little square and then you just open it and, and, and it's, it's all intuitive. But how do you get to this point? So what is the process of simplifying? Well, I think it starts with finding friction points that your customer experiences now. And I'll go, I mean, the Kindle right, announced in 2007. And he describes this, that they, Amazon, had the audacious goal to reinvent the book, something that had been around for 500 years. And there's a concept that he talks about, and he, he, he talks about it specifically in retail stores, right? So for many years, Amazon didn't have retail stores, but then they all of a sudden started experimenting with what a retail retail store might look like. Well, the same thing happened with the Kindle. How might a book be reinvented? And the phrase he uses is meaningful differentiation. So what he said with in 2006 letter, he said, you know, we don't know right now how to create a retail experience that's meaningfully different than what you can get right now. But fast forward to probably five years ago, they opened their first Amazon Go store, which is a small 1,500 square feet-ish convenience store, right? Just kind of like a 7-Eleven or you go get snacks and drinks and maybe some prepared sandwiches. But literally, you scan your app to get into the store. You pick off the shelf what you want to buy, and you put it in a basket or a bag, and you just walk out. 
because the technology, machine vision, machine learning, right, all kinds of sensors know what you picked off the shelves and know the price. And you just get a few minutes later an email with your receipt. Well, that solved, that was meaningfully different than having to stand at a checkout line at a grocery store, even the self-checkout, right? Which just doesn't seem to work well. So that's how they think. What can we do? Not just do what everybody else has done, but what can we do that's meaningfully different? And again, it's all focused on the customer. Yeah, so it makes sense. So basically what you're saying is that it is a friction point for the customer in a grocery store that they have to queue up and wait in line to be able to pay and some of them you know slowly pull the products across the you know the counter and they will look at it and it all takes a, a bunch of time and it's probably meaningless. I mean they already have the barcodes on it. So why right. do they have to again check the barcode? You just take it off the shelf and that already can register that there's a transaction. Register that, yep. And then you just walk out. And so they remove this big friction and it becomes meaningfully different for them. And they started with convenience store. They've now opened a 10,000 square foot grocery store with the same technology. And they are licensing the technology to other retailers, right? So they're able to invent for their own purposes and experiment and have real world examples and then license that to other retailers that want retailers that want access to that technology. Yeah, that is amazing. Yeah, I, I heard that Whole Foods is going to be like that at some point. Mm-hmm. They acquire too. Yep. Yeah, can't, can't wait. Although you have all these shoppers who, who shop for you, so maybe you don't need this anymore. <laughs> exactly. That's right. So that's interesting. So one of the other concepts you talk about, maybe that's connected to this one, is how do you get to this point? And you talk about the high-velocity decision-making. And I wonder what that means. I mean, Amazon, Amazon is a huge company. And uh, they have, I mean, even if they try to keep very flat, they're going to have a huge uh, structure there, whole corporate structure. And, and you know, people on the floor, they come up with a decision. How, how does it even get across and how do they process this stuff? Well, and, and again, I think this is where Bezos is very counterintuitive to how most businesses work. And basically what he feels is that small teams, one, they communicate better. And two, they can make faster decisions and faster decisions lead to better results. And so they have a couple things they do. I I, I mentioned a meeting, a decision meeting, right? Okay, I have a new product, I'm pitching, new service, I'm pitching. That meeting starts with what's called a six-page narrative. And so no PowerPoint, nothing else. This is a written document, a maximum of six pages, The document starts with what they call a future press release, meaning this is the day two years from now that this product's going to be released. Mm -hmm. Here's the press release describing the benefit to the customer. What are the what are the new things that they've done? And then they go into a FAQ. What are gonna what are the common questions people are gonna ask about how we're gonna do it, what the product does, you know, what are the benefits, et cetera. And that is handed out. It is not sent out beforehand. It is handed out at the meeting. And as Bezos describes it, we have a study hall for 15 to 30 minutes where everybody, executives on down, spend that first 30 minutes reading the memo. And the benefit is you slow down to speed up because now everybody literally is on the same page. If you have a question, it hopefully is answered in the FAQ. If it's not, you have a discussion, but then the discussion is much more focused on 
problems they may not have seen, right? All of those kinds of things is much more productive uh, process. And I, I don't know of any other business that does it that way. The other thing they'd have is a got rule. I'll call it a rule, but a team at Amazon should be no bigger than what two large pizzas can feed. So they believe now that may mean like an a, a, like a Kindle, you know, project creating that could mean they have 500 teams, each with responsibility mm-hmm. for a specific part of the process. Because Bezos says we don't need better you know, communication among teams, we need teams small enough that communication happens organically. And those teams have responsibility and ownership of the decision they make. And that leads faster decisions. So that's a little background. And quickly, the high velocity decisions, Bezos describes as two types of decisions. Type one, bet the farm, huge decisions, He says those should be made slowly, carefully, with lots of data by executive, you know, high level executives. He said the second type of decision or type two, which are decisions that are easily reversible. So type one are hard to reverse, right? Type two are easily reversible. The way he describes it is if you go through that door that that decision you wanted to go through and you get on the other side and don't like what you see, you literally just turn around and come back. There, it's, it's little consequence or you make another decision that pivots or changes the direction. He said what happens in larger companies is there's a tendency to take type two decisions into a type one process. And that all the result of that is slowing down decision making, which slows down growth. That is very interesting. And, uh, and this is very true. I mean, you have a negative economy scale. You, you're growing your team. I, I used to facilitate a group of C, a peer group of CEOs. And as I was growing the group, when I crossed the 14-member threshold, 12 to 14, actually 12 was like the ideal when you had 12, like the 12 apostles, the 12, you know, angry men. So when you had the 12 people, that was ideal because you you got enough diversity of ideas, but people were still engaged. They didn't feel like, oh, okay, those people are talking over there. I don't have to contribute. You you were actually accountable to this other group. As we crossed this threshold and the group became bigger, people disengaged. They felt like there's not enough time for them to to share their opinion or or at least maybe to even to ask questions. So they would want to butt in and just share what they have, but the curiosity disappeared. So it is it is true that it's critical to keep these these teams small. I mean, two pizza can feed them. Well, and and, and the other Again, this is how the principles work with each other. They stand on their own, but they also work with each other. But one of the principles in the scale cycle is focus on high standards. And at Amazon, that's hiring is a big piece of that, right? They hire A players. So the people on the team are not just skillful, but they are high quality people that want to work with other high quality people. So that synergy on those small teams becomes a real key factor in their growth. Yeah, that, that is true. I mean, A players want to play with A players. And sometimes, you know, there's an interesting analogy. I, I think it was Malcolm Gladwell who, who kind of explained it in one of his podcasts when he talked about that there are some sports where you improve the team by putting a star on the team. For example, basketball, you put LeBron James in a team, for sure that's going to make it to the playoff. Well, maybe not every time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, But conversely, in soccer, 
which is a different different sport. There, you improve the team by removing the weakest player. Mm. Uh, so you're actually helping by removing that B player that frustrates all the other people that makes that mistake that will lead to a goal. And and I think that happens with companies as well. I mean, different types of companies, but you need both. You need to have some yep. stars who obviously fit your culture, but you also need to remove that person that holds everyone back, that kind of sets a low standard that makes it okay for everyone else to, to not try as hard. It's the Jack Welch idea of removing the, the lower layer every time to keep upping the the quality of the, the of quality the of the of the the resulting team absolutely yeah. yeah that's that's awesome yeah so that's that's great and the, the high velocity decisions obviously it, it allows you to stay nimble as a big company maybe you're a big company but you have this small team so essentially you are entrepreneurial within the big company yep and is this what leads to the exceptional customer experience so you're talking about the customer experience pillars in, yes. in your book. What, what is this idea about? Yeah. So, uh, you know, at Amazon, they really started with two and, and Bezos added a third one, but the customer pillars are, and I mentioned them before in the flywheel idea, but it is wide selection, low prices and fast delivery. And, and he, I, I like the way he describes it. He says, we can't imagine a time that customers will want less selection, higher prices and slower delivery. Right. So again, when you look at what Amazon does, they still are focused on those three pillars. So wide selection, they keep expanding. You know, it's called the everything store for a reason. They keep expanding, you know, what they have available to you. Their pricing is low. It's not always the lowest, but certainly they're trusted at having consistently low prices. And now, you know, it used to be fast delivery was two days. Now it's one day and it's rapidly going to an hour or, or quicker, depending on you know, where you are. Urban areas are a little easier to do that with. But there is even an initiative at Amazon right now where they're building smaller distribution centers in more rural areas so they can what deliver fast delivery in areas where it's dif- difficult to do right now, but always thinking about the customer and how we can improve that experience. You're right. It is amazing. Sometimes, especially if you order something that is a common product. For example, I, I used to order a lot of the traction books from Amazon. Now uh-huh. I don't, no longer order it from, from them because I go for hardcover, but I used to order it from them. And sometimes I would order it in the morning, not even early morning, like late morning, 11 a.m. And at 4 p.m., someone would show up with a, a car, a regular car, and they would yep. just drop it off. I right. couldn't believe it. And right. they are talking about the drones as well, which which can even increase speed. Uh, I don't know if that's ever going to happen, but sounds like uh, well, a I, idea. And it's funny you mentioned drones because that's an interesting example of long-term thinking. They first announced, Bezos did on 60 Minutes, six years ago now, I think, that they were experimenting with drones. Well, you know, that's a pretty long window of time. They're still working and experimenting. In fact, they announced last month, let's, let's say recently, part of their Ring home security system a drone that sits in your ha- inside your house that if an alarm goes off the drone actually raises flies to where the alarm was a door a window with a camera and starts taking pictures right so a drone inside your house well you know some people are saying what about privacy i'm thinking how creative is that now it may not sell and frankly, Amazon doesn't care, but they keep experimenting and trying to see what might work. Yeah. 
What I'm most excited about, which I heard from Amazon, was that they made this commitment to get to zero emissions. Mm-hmm. I think it's 2030 or some some date. Uh, do you know anything about that? How that is going, and how they're gonna how they're planning to achieve that? Yeah, so they've had an initiative for several initiatives for quite a while. One of the first ones was called uh, frustration-free packaging. So I have seven grandchildren. A couple of years ago at Christmas, right, all the toys and right, all that stuff. Well, all the adults, the dads were sitting around with knives and scissors and trying to get these toys out of this packaging, right? Clamshell, clear. And what someone at Amazon realized was we don't have to show toys in a store on a shelf that's going to grab a kid's attention. We have a website. We show pictures. And so they started talking to manufacturers to create easily openable packaging and packaging that wouldn't require another box for it to be shipped in. Mm -hmm. So they started several years ago trying to reduce their uh, recyclable stuff, and they've made huge success. Bezos just announced the first funding for sustainable grants to different organizations. He's He says he's committed $10 billion over the next few years to move that forward. So I think there's a real emphasis and effort there at Amazon. It has been for a while, but we're starting to see a bit more results or visibility. There's been a lot of work going on inside that you don't see until it's announced, but uh, yeah, I, I, that's a big area for Bezos himself in terms of since high school, you know, he's been concerned about that. Again, most people don't understand that, but using his resources now to keep that movement moving forward. And frankly, that's the whole space thing, Blue Origin too, mm-hmm. is creating a way that the infrastructure for getting to space is significantly cheaper. So we have more invention of space utilization. Bezos started Blue Origin in 2000 and for the first five years, never told anybody about it. But again, what most people don't realize is Bezos was the valedictorian in his high school class. And in his speech, he talked about the need to make the earth a national park and that we needed to move manufacturing and that and those kinds of things to space. And, you know, again, long-term vision, right? We talked about earlier, he's, he, and he self-funded Blue Origin to the tune of over a billion dollars a year. And he calls Blue Origin his most important work. You know, so, you know, I think there's a real focus there on his part to uh, improve both what Amazon does and what he can do uh, himself. Yeah, certainly. I think if anyone, any entrepreneur can drive change, he certainly has the money. He's got the vehicle, Amazon, which is this big company. And he also, I mean, Amazon produces a lot of packaging material, which really could do with, with uh, you know, with do less and, and more right. recyclable. So definitely yep. there are plenty of opportunities. So thank you very much. Really enjoyed talking with you. So if our listeners would like to learn more, obviously they can read the Bezos Letters, which is available on, guess where? On guess where, exactly. (laughs) Uh, 14 Principles to Grow Your Business Like Amazon, and that works for small to medium-sized businesses, so professional service businesses, as well as technology companies. So I I really recommend you check that out. Where else can people reach you, uh, Steve? So if you do buy the book, there's some additional support material to help you to get the most out of it at uh, thebezosletters.com, the website, uh, along with just some other information there. So that would be the best place to go. 
Okay, sounds good. Well, certainly check it out. And it was a pleasure having you. Lots of interesting uh, uh, information and stories. And great to have you. And for listeners, uh, stay tuned uh, next week. Thank great, you. Great, Steve. Thank you so much. Take care. This was the Prof Serve Traction Podcast with Steve Prada. To learn how your professional services or technology business could break through the ceiling with EOS, visit tractionequity.com.